Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. So this morning we return to our series, second week of our series here in the fall growth series called Detour. In case you were here last weekend or you're with us on our broadcast and you couldn't tell, I'm really excited about this series because it may feel very simple, it may feel very basic, and in some ways we are returning back to the basics of the Christian faith. But listen, this is really radical stuff we're talking about. It's radical in our 21st century because many of us don't think of discipleship the way that Jesus presents it to us and the way that the early church lived out this type of relationship with God. And so we are, as we continue this series, just a reminder that in simple, very simple terms, discipleship is simply a work in progress. It is a work in progress. Discipleship is God's work in us that we then cooperate with in our lives. Here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter two. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now notice the work that's happening. And really the optimal word in that scripture is the word continue. Discipleship is a continued cooperation with the work that God is doing in us. It is our way of cooperating with him and working together with him. So last weekend, I said that when I think of discipleship, and when you hear that word discipleship, I want you to think of three things. I want you to think of process, I want you to think of a posture, and I want you to think of a practice. Now, I'm not an alliteration guy, but that really alliterates well, doesn't it? Easy to remember, okay? Discipleship is a process, it is a posture, And it's a practice. Last weekend, we briefly touched on each one of those. This morning, and for the next three weekends, we're going to unpack these further in our understanding of what it means to be a disciple, what really is the invitation into discipleship, and how do we move into it. So this morning, I want to talk a little further, a little deeper, into this idea of discipleship as a process. Before we go there, let me remind you of the definition that I'm using for this series. The definition of discipleship is this. Discipleship is the process of being shaped or formed by God's word to the image of Christ in order to become a fully surrendered Christ follower. Discipleship is the process of being shaped or formed by God's word to the image of Christ in order to become a fully surrendered Christ follower. That, by the way, is what beats in the heart at Grace Crossing Church. We have no surprises here. There are no secret agendas at Grace Crossing Church. We have a mission for your life. And our mission is that we want to help you become a fully surrendered Christ followers, which is going to take a great deal of humility. It's going to take an extraordinary amount of trust. It's going to take a teachable heart that is willing to go where God leads and be willing to cooperate and follow him. 
So big idea with the series is simple. Christianity, becoming a Christian doesn't make you a disciple. Becoming a disciple makes you Christian. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the New Testament teaches. That's what Jesus introduced to us, discipleship. So we don't become a Christian and then assume we're going to be a disciple. Rather, we are invited to become disciples, which then in turn makes us Christian. The Bible uses the word Christian a whole of three times. Discipleship, nearly 300 times. Most of those are found in the Gospels and are coming from the mouth of Jesus. Now, let me say it this way. Faith in God without discipleship is not authentic Christianity. That may sound really radical, but I think that's what the Scripture teaches. Christianity... Faith in God without discipleship is actually illegitimate. It's not authentic. I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania in a rural community west of Philadelphia. I grew up in relative poverty. I grew up right near railroad tracks, and I used to love uh, walking the railroad tracks. I lived literally a stone's throw, even as a kid. I could pick up a rock from our driveway and I could hit the side of a train as it went by. As a kid growing up in relative poverty, I remember how money used to matter. I used to think what it would be like to be wealthy, to have money. And one day I was walking down our railroad tracks and I saw a, a stone, a rock that looked very similar to this rock here that we have on an image today. I remember picking up this rock and thinking, oh my goodness, for, for some reason, the sun was shining on it just right that day, and I noticed it, and I thought, man, this is, this is incredible. And I, I didn't just see one rock. I started to see dozens of rocks, and then hundreds of rocks, and then thousands of rocks. And I remember jetting back to my house, getting a bucket, and walking down those rail tracks and picking up these rocks. I began to take them to my garage, and I would do that often. I would go pick up these rocks. I was just absolutely captivated by their beauty. And most of all, I couldn't even imagine that a kid growing up in, in a rural town in eastern Pennsylvania had now struck gold. Like, I was rich. Nobody else had ever seen these rocks walking the railroad tracks, but I saw them. And I'm a wealthy kid now, right? <laughs> Until one day I learned <laughs> that what I really had was called iron pyrite, or what many of us know as fool's gold. Fool's gold. Listen, faith in God without discipleship is fool's gold Christianity. It, it may look authentic. It may, it may even feel valuable. But according to Scripture, it's really worth little to nothing. So the only time we actually hear the term disciple and Christian in one phrase, it only appears one time in the Bible. In Acts chapter 11 Verse number 26, when it says this, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Notice the order. They were known as Christians or as disciples long before they were ever called Christians. They were already known as disciples. That was, that was who they were. But now for the first time, they're actually termed 
Christians, little Christ, Christ followers. And that's a radical shift that happens, an understanding of what's happening here. These people who were disciples are starting to look a whole lot like the, the person they're following. And it's getting the attention of everybody who's watching them. So Paul the Apostle, who actually uh, wrote nearly half or at least half of the New Testament, actually talks a lot about discipleship. He, he talks a lot about this process of discipleship. And specifically, he talks about an aspect of it that I want to talk about this morning that I want to introduce by way of another road sign. Here's the road sign I want to use to introduce our, our topic today. Yield right-of-way. Yield right-of-way. Let's be honest for just a moment. How many of you get just a little bit annoyed by having to yield right away? Come on, we're in church. You can be honest, right? How many of you, when you hit this sign, actually, first of all, think, I hope the other person yields right-of-way to me? You know, it's interesting when COVID hit and things shut down and then people just slowly started to kind of come out of their homes. I actually was struck by how walking our neighborhood on our sidewalks that we had to make that decision regularly. When you're walking a sidewalk in a direction heading toward another person, you're asking yourself, who's going to yield right away here? Like, who is going to give preferred position? to the other individual. That's what it means. It means to give up your rights of having your way. It means I'm willing to step out of the way and let someone else lead the way and even have the preferred privileged position. They become first. I give up my right to that, to that space for them. That is really what Paul talks about when he talks about this idea of surrender, being a fully surrendered Christ follower. That word surrender is so critical and it's what Paul often talks about in his letters, this idea of yielding ourselves. Now one place where he talks about it is in the book of Ephesians chapter four. When Paul says this, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When Paul here talks about putting off and putting on, he actually is suggesting the idea of yielding. The words actually appear in the present active tense, which means that it's something we don't do one time, but rather it's something that we are continually doing. It is a daily experience of yielding and surrender. And notice what Paul does. Paul talks about two selves in Ephesians. He talks about an old self, and he talks about a new self. Paul says that we are to put off our old self and put on our new self. Now listen, 
Our new self is not new to God. It's new to us. It's something that we have not yet become fully familiar with. In fact, let me say this. I am a disciple long before I am a pastor. And as a disciple, I am continually meeting my new self. Getting to know my new self that's created in God's likeness, God's holiness, and God's beauty. I I don't do that on my own. That's what God does as he reveals the new self to me. But I am always contending with an old self. Many more contemporary writers use the term false self and true self or real self. The idea is we carry these two selves. And what we are called to do is we are called to yield our old self to the new self. That's created in the likeness of God. And Paul says this work of discipleship is really God's work in us that we now cooperate with and we actually become part of as God leads us and God directs us. Paul in the book of Romans actually writes even more about this. Paul wrote a letter to the Christians who were living spread throughout the Roman Empire. And in a book by that name, Romans, Paul actually talks about what this process of yielding looks like from God's perspective. What is God doing? As we're yielding, what's God doing? How's God working in us? What is God forming and shaping in us? And I love how Romans captures this in just a couple of verses. First of all, Romans chapter eight, verse number 29. God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. Let me say it again. Discipleship is the process of being shaped or formed to the image of Christ in order to become a fully surrendered Christ follower. Paul here is saying this, that God knew me, that God knew all about me, but he didn't just know me, but God chose me. Think about that for just a moment. I grew up in a single family home. I often played pickup sports as a kid with older kids in our community. I usually hung around with older kids because I loved following my older brother who was four years my elder. And when he would go to play pickup sports, I'd always want to be there with him. Well, picking teams as a kid was not unlike it is today. When you gather in a community as kids for pickup sports, you typically pick two captains. They're usually the oldest or the biggest, the strongest, the ones who could beat the others down. And then they get to pick and choose who's going to be on their team. And I remember as a kid, I was typically the youngest. Four years younger than my brother, a lot of older kids. And I would stand there, my eyes just fixed on them as they're picking, longing to be the one who got chosen. And there was something powerful when your name gets spoken, when you're chosen, when you're selected. Listen, God did that with you. God did that with you. God did not just know you before you were born. God selected you. God chose you. God said, I want you on my team. I want you to be on my side. And I'm doing the work of saying, I want you. I'm choosing you. 
So what happens is this, when we move into this process of discipleship, there are actually four beautiful things that happen. The first is talked about here. But I discover my true identity. I discover actually my true identity. I discover that before my mom, before my dad thought about me, God did. Before they ever chose to have a child and birth that child and name me, God already had me in mind. God already had me in view. God already named me and God had a purpose for me, which is the second thing that happens in the process of discipleship. Not only do we discover our true identity, but we find our purpose. Discipleship helps us to find our purpose. That's actually what Romans chapter eight beginning of first, verse number 30 says. The first part says, and having chosen them, he called them to come to him. He called them to come to him. We live in a world today where calling has fallen out of vogue. People would much rather email or text or Facebook message than to pick up the phone and call. Most of the time when my phone rings today, it actually comes up with these two words, potential scam. (laughs) I mean, it's rare that I actually get calls these days from people that I care about who care about me. On my birthday, on September the 1st, the first call I got in the morning at 9 a.m. was my mom. Now, those of you who know my story know that I have not been in relationship with my mom for 30 years, have moved in the last year or so into relationship with her. It's probably been, I can probably count on two hands the times my mom has called me in life. When my phone rang and I heard my mom, it was something powerful because I know that behind the call was she was thinking about me. I mattered to her, so much so that she would call me. And I want you to understand what the scripture's teaching about our purpose. Before Jesus ever commissioned his disciples to go and do, he called them to come and be. He was thinking about them being with him. In fact, let me say this. Your being in God is what gives meaning and value and purpose to your doing. If we separate the doing from the being, the doing is wasted time, it's wasted energy. What gives that value and purpose is when we understand that God's thinking about us and notice this, he is calling us to come to him, to be with him. It is believed that Jesus spent nearly a third of his time with disciples for three years. Nearly a third of that time was spent on the front end just being with. They didn't do, they weren't given any assignments. They weren't asked to take care of any tasks. They were just with him. And that's what God calls us to. He helps us find purpose. Now, Paul actually connects this idea of calling and purpose in a verse just two verses earlier. In Romans chapter eight, verse 28, here's what he says. We know that God calls us all things to work together for good, To those who love God, now notice this, to those who are called according to his purpose. Notice whose purpose it is. It's God's purpose. 
To understand what the Bible is teaching here, what Paul is getting at, and to really appreciate what he's suggesting, just consider the wisdom of a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. An Australian neurologist and psychiatrist, Frankl was also a Holocaust survivor. During his time in Nazi concentration camps, Viktor Frankl saw some of the most horrendous human tragedies and suffering that evil could inflict. And what he does is he suggests that there's only one way to get through those things, to find purpose in those things. There's only one way to see meaning out of all of those acts of suffering and atrocities. And that was that we had to gain what Viktor Frankl called a redemptive perspective to our suffering. A redemptive perspective. And what he's suggesting here is not that we look at evil and think that it's good. It's not looking at negative experiences and saying they're not negative. No, negative experiences will always remain negative. But what he's saying is you, if you will have a redemptive perspective, you can find something of value, meaning, and worth. Something that you'll learn. An empathy that you'll gain. A skill that you'll be taught. A hope that you will now find out of that suffering. And Frankl spent years of his life working with thousands of suicide patients and not one person ever committed suicide under his care. And I think it's a direct result of the fact that he's helping them find a redemptive perspective. Now listen, Romans 8.28 gives us a redemptive perspective. It helps us see this. It helps us see that nothing in our lives is coincidental. In finding our purpose, we find that God has a purpose for everything we have gone through in our lives. Nothing is by coincidence. Listen, coincidence is simply God choosing to remain silent. It is God choosing to remain anonymous. But it doesn't mean he isn't there. The other thing that a redemptive perspective helps us to understand is that God never wastes an experience. That's really what Romans 8.28 says. So part of emotionally healthy spirituality and discipleship for us at Grace Crossing Church involves going back in order that we can go forward. It is going back and finding redemptive perspective on the things that we have gone through in our life. We don't go back as prisoners of our past. We go back as people freed that now are looking and saying, we are free in Christ. What is it that God's tried to teach me? I was on a spiritual retreat a number of weeks ago. I was listening to a podcast. And in the podcast, they had you pause at certain points where they were asking questions. And one of the questions they asked we're telling the story about Jesus who appears to his disciples following the resurrection. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And one of the questions that the podcaster asked was this, what is it? What is it you'd want to say to the Holy Spirit right now? 
I remember being stirred by the question. I paused the podcast and I was walking and I remember tears just filling my eyes. Because here's the question that I felt so compelled to ask the Holy Spirit. Were you there? And then I started to name some of the experiences I went through as a kid. Were you there? Were you there in the pain? Were you there in the suffering? Were you there in the sadness? Were you there in the fear? Were you there? And I felt the Holy Spirit's response to me with tears. I felt the Holy Spirit say back to me, I was. I was. I was there. Even when you were going through those things. That's what redemptive perspective gives to us. It helps us understand our purpose, that God has a purpose even through all of the pain and suffering that we may go through in our lives. The third, I think, thing that really triggers out of this process of discipleship is not only do we discover our identity, not only when we're we're being discipled, do we find our purpose, but thirdly, we are made righteous. This is really powerful. Romans chapter eight, the second part of verse number 30. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. He gave them right standing with himself. The word here is justified. It means that you are made righteous before God. That's what the word justified means. Becoming righteous is actually God's work in us. Righteousness means that I am right in God's estimation. Now listen, this is gonna gonna rock your world when I say this, but God has an opinion about you and God's opinion of you is that you're right. Even when I do wrong, I am still right in God's opinion. Not because of me, because of what Jesus did for me. Second Corinthians actually says this very clearly. Verse, chapter five, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is powerful. Righteousness is not what I do or don't do. Righteousness is not what I've done or what's been done to me. Righteousness is what God did for me and God says, I've already done it to make you and put you in right standing before me with Jesus. So another way to think of this is justified means just as if I never sinned. That that blows my mind. How awesome is it that God wants me to understand my righteousness and then to live out my righteousness in a trusting relationship of discipleship? And then one final thing he says, the latter part of verse number 30, Romans chapter eight. He says, and then having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. 
The final thing is that I, through discipleship, I share in the glory of God. I share in the glory of God. Now, when we hear the word glory, um, we often think of heaven. But the glory of God actually is what was happening on earth. It's, it's God's display that's happening in ways that people can understand it and see it. The Bible says no one has ever seen God face to face, and yet God's constantly revealing himself to us. Jesus came in as the embodiment of God's glory. We are then invited to be the embodiment of God's glory, which simply means this. God reveals himself through a variety of ways, sometimes through miracles, sometimes through acts of kindness, through attitudes where we are positioned to think like him, through doing unto the least of these, as Matthew chapter 25 talks about. When we are doing those kind of things with God, cooperating with him, we share in the glory of God. People see God displayed. And that's what he wants for all of our lives. Now, here's what I wanna do. As we close this out, I wanna take a detour of sorts. And I wanna detour out of the book of Romans where Paul's talking about the process that I am chosen and he who's been chosen, I've been called and, and then he's called me, he's justified me, he, just, he glorified me. Paul actually knew what this was like firsthand because Paul was in the process of becoming a disciple. So I wanna detour and I wanna use his life as this illustration as we bring this talk to a conclusion this morning. Paul is journeying in Acts chapter nine on the road to Damascus where he has permission by the authorities to arrest Christians and to imprison them, to make sure they suffer for their faith in Christ. On his way, he has this radical moment where God appears to him, Jesus appears to him, and here's the exchange in Acts chapter nine, verses four and five. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now notice what happens at the very beginning. Here we are meeting Paul in his pre-transformation state. He is living out of his old self. Paul is living a false sense of self where he wanted to be right in his own eyes and he wanted other people to look favorably upon him. And in his pre-conversion experience, Paul is actually known by his birth name. He's known by Saul. That's who he was. He was born in Tarsus. He's known as Saul of Tarsus. And what's happening here? is that Jesus comes to reveal himself to Saul, but watch this. He comes to reveal Saul to Saul. He's actually showing Saul who he is and what he's doing. He didn't see it. He didn't get it. He's led blind into the city where God speaks to a man by the name of Ananias to come to him. 
And here's what it says. Verses 15 and 16 of Acts chapter 9. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is a chosen instrument to to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How would you like that? You come to faith in Christ and the first thing you're told is, let me show you how much you're going to suffer. What's God doing here? What's Jesus doing? First of all, Jesus is saying this, I got a plan for your life, Saul, long before you planned your life. And not only do I have a plan for you, and not only do I know your true identity, but watch this, I want to give you now a redemptive perspective. I'm going to start to show you how suffering is useful in my kingdom, how you are going to grow as a result of it. Paul, or Saul, is following, trusting, doesn't know where to go. So he heads on his road to Damascus. He turns back. Now with his eyesight regained, he's headed back to Jerusalem. And here's the first thing he does, verses 26 and 27. When he came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Not believing that he was really a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Now, can you imagine this? He is going to say, I am now following Jesus, and I want to be a part of your community And the Bible says they're afraid of him. Let me just say this. Probably more than anything else, what keeps us from discipleship is fear. And I think it works two ways. I I think fear keeps people from becoming discipled because they are afraid of what it might mean for them They're afraid that they will not do it right. And so many people are afraid to move into discipleship because they simply don't know what it will involve. I think the other side is equally true. I think many people are afraid to make disciples because they're afraid they don't know enough. You might be sitting here this morning, you may be watching on the broadcast, you feel deficient in this area of discipleship. I don't know if I know enough. I don't know if I am enough. And fear will keep us from becoming fully surrendered or making fully surrendered Christ followers. But thank God for Barnabas. (laughs) Thank God for Barnabas. Thank God, Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, looks past the fear, past the doubts, and says this, I'm going to advocate for Paul, for Saul. I'm going to advocate for him. I'm going to take him, and I'm going to say, he's with me. He's with me. Which I think is just another important aspect of discipleship you've got to understand. No one becomes a disciple on their own. It doesn't happen. Discipleship involves community. It involves others coming around us. It it involves somebody who's going to advocate for us. I thank God I had a Barnabas. I thank God I had people that said, we believe in you. We believe in what God has for you. 
and we are gonna help come around you and shape you. Now listen, my discipleship was very informal. It was very organic. It was very relational. Before I ever was formally taught, I was catching discipleship. And you know how I was becoming a disciple? I wasn't just becoming a disciple by following Jesus. I didn't know what that meant. But what I did know is this. I could follow other Christ followers. And if I can just get on in relationship with other Christ followers who are following him, I'm going to start to grow. But you got to pursue this. This will not happen by wishful thinking. Something powerful happens in Saul's life because as he is finding his identity, as he is realizing his purpose, he's getting a redemptive perspective. You know, God is doing something profound. God's making him righteous and God's sharing his glory with him. So much so that in Acts chapter 13, here's what it says about him. Saul, better known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, he was promised that at his conversion. But what's so powerful about this verse is this is a major transitional shift in the New Testament. Never again do we read of Saul of Tarsus. From this verse forward, he is now known and referred to now and forever as Paul the Apostle. There is such a radical change in who he was that there was an identity shift of how he became known. And I love how he characterizes his own discipleship. Galatians chapter one, verses 15 and 16. Even before I was born, here's what he says. Even before I was born, God chose me and he called me by his marvelous grace. This is the summary of everything we've had this morning. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Go, make disciples. That's what God was doing with him. God was actually transforming him into a disciple so that he would disciple others, so that he would make disciples. That's God's invitation. It may feel radical, but it's biblical. It's what we're called to. The process has these beautiful outcomes, but it doesn't happen by osmosis. It happens by us saying, I want to accept God's invitation. So here's my question as we close. How is God inviting you into discipleship? How is God inviting you into discipleship? And more importantly, how are you responding to God's invitation? Perhaps you have felt nudged by him. Maybe this morning God has prompted something in you that I don't know my identity. I don't even have a purpose. I don't have a redemptive perspective on my past. In fact, I, don't, I want to ignore it altogether. How might God be inviting you to share in his glory here on this earth so that others can see him in you? And how are you responding to it? I got an email this past week from somebody here at Grace Crossing Church that was joining us on our broadcast last weekend. 
And here's the essence of what they said. They said, if GCC is about making disciples, if that's what you're about, count me in. I loved it. Can God count you in today? Can God count on you? Can God count you in? Are you saying, Lord, I am ready. I am willing. And I'm teachable. Let's stand together. I want to pray, and then we have one final song that we're going to just lift our hearts to God to worship him as we, as we bring our time to a close this morning. Would you just bow your head and let me pray. Father, this feels foreign to us in some ways because some of us simply have not done it. And it's going to be really difficult. If we lived a Christian life where we have not been discipled, we've not been intentional about helping others to be discipled, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be challenging. So we're going to need your grace. We're going to need your grace to take the first step. To just say, I want this. I long for this. Um, for some, God, it might be just taking a step into relationship with another Christian, another Christ follower, somebody that they respect and look up to, and just simply reaching out and saying, hey, I really want to grow. Would you, would you support me? Would you pray with me? Would you maybe meet for, with me periodically so that we can pray together? And for all of us, Lord, I pray you'll give us a heart and a posture of saying, count me in. Let our hearts be surrendered to you so that we can become fully surrendered Christ followers here at Grace Crossing Church. We love you and we thank you for it in Christ's name. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.